0: Hi everybody. It's 2024. It's going to be a rough year, but um, because our community groups are just really taking on the challenge, I'm expecting good things to happen. Uh, so enjoy the show. We're going to talk about uh, our tourism industry with Walt Legere, and we're going to talk with um, Jonathan Light about affordable housing. And um, they're both really smart guys, so um, stay tuned.
1: Be a I know that we can, I know down well, we can work it out, well,
2: yes we can, I know we can, can, if we can, can, or why
0: can't we if we want it, yes we can, can. Oh, can. What well, yes, was there making, took on what I'm sure what he didn't it. fully appreciate what he did, how rigorous and complex and critically important, of course he recognized the importance I'm sure, the tourism industry is. We think visitors just come here, have a good time, come back, um, tell their friends to come. Uh, you no, know, it's not that simple. And um, it, it, it's just, when I read your um, year-end letter, I guess it was year-end, year to go, um, I was floored by the many, many permutations of the work that has to be done from this marketing standpoint, to the service standpoint, to the um, data collection and understanding of of where we're at and so on. Um, So you took on a big darn job. And um, I'm I'm curious to hear your very first impressions as you kind of dug in.
2: Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's always great to see you and be with you. Um, It is a fascinating industry and job and one that um, I certainly, as you said, understood the importance of whether I fully grasp the complexity of it or not um is probably it's probably true that I didn't and then of course when I really started working in this field it was just about two months and and then covid started impacting the industry and so it's certainly oh, been I bapt- didn't
0: realize it was that bapt-
2: close. yeah certainly been baptism by fire and you know we um it's a we have a complicated relationship with with tourism and hospitality in the city of New Orleans you know I think we, uh, uh, while we very much uh, as a, I think as a community are proud of our city and we, you know, love the fact that people um, love it so much. Um, I think there are also times where, um, you know, I think people at least get the feeling that there's some value placed on on a visitor that goes beyond that of a resident. And one of the things that I know we're really focused on is trying to make sure that we marry those two things together. You know, I, I feel really strongly that, the, the same things that the residents of New Orleans want from their city are really th- the things that make it attractive to visit. And, and so um, what we're what we're working hard to do is one to you know, connect opportunities for residents to be able to benefit from the visitors that come to the city directly, whether that be through jobs or through um, opportunities to to perform or or sell their art or um, or get in front of those individuals who come to our community. Um, and also be a voice for our our community as we work with stakeholders, whether that be on issues like public safety or infrastructure, um, even early childhood education and things like that. I mean, we have 75,000 people that work in our industry, and in order for them to be, you know, happy, fulfilled, and successful, they need certain things from our community, from our state, and from our city. Um, and so it does put us in a unique place, because we we kind of intersect with all of these different things and that's not even to mention the fact that we go out to the world every day and and put our city in the best light that we can so that conventions conferences meetings uh choose new orleans over every other city so that the nfl the nba the ncaa um, the world wrestling entertainment any major organization that's choosing where to have special events that they choose new orleans over any other city um and then of course that uh individuals choose to come here whether that be for vacation or whether it be to come take a look at our city for investment or or otherwise um i think uh our team just works really hard and and loves our community so much um but as you said i think it often the complexities of it are often glossed over probably like many other fields so oh,
0: so yeah. So just 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 now in that very short introduction, you mentioned different kinds of visitation that require entirely different models of how you market and and um, ha- service and uh, communicate with uh, people. So um, and and you know. <sighs> I have to tell you, I I arrived in New Orleans in 1972, and I in 1973 I was working with WDSU. I was sent out on a story about a bus that was holding up, um, about the tourism buses clogging traffic in the French Quarter. Right. That was our idea at the time of a tourism story. So I go to the tourism office, which was there on on um, Conti Street, and. there were two people there and Neil and beverly diana mm-hmm. that was the tourism industry right. office at the time because new orleans at the time really did not understand tourism as economic development which of course as you know is the issue we still have with the cultural uh, economy that people don't understand the economic importance of that right. so i i fully appreciate how far we've come uh since then in in recognizing all of the different permutations of your business, but let, let's just take just one of them. Let's sure. say conventions and meetings, right? Um, and 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 describe you know your, your your sort of your marketing plan, your approach to that industry, just so people have an idea. Sure. But I mean, yeah, like no,
2: that. Thank about. you for that, and I think it, it's an interesting context that you laid out just now because in the in the '70s, the tourism industry was sort of burgeoning and growing. Um, in the 80s, you know, when you look at 1984 with the World's Fair, um, so much construction of hotels and other uh, venues happened at that time. And I think there was a belief that New Orleans was, and I think maybe in some sectors, there's still a belief that New Orleans is this major um, leisure destination and that we really rely on the leisure traveler to drive so much of our economy here. and And in reality, that's not accurate you know i mean certainly we have a lot of people who come here for leisure purposes but as you were as you were saying the convention conference and meeting industry is really the foundation of the tourism and visitor economy for the for the city of new orleans for example it i'll give you It supports your
0: leisure industry it does
2: it, it absolutely does and it creates the the pressure and sort of the compression on the industry that drives success um, in the in the leisure area I'll, I'll I'll paint a little picture for you. In 2019, we had about 19 million visitors that came to the city of New Orleans and only about 4.5 million of them were here for conferences, conventions and meetings, but they spent about 50% of the, of the visitor spend. And so what makes up about 25 to 30% of the visitors accounts for more than half of the spending. And part of the reason why is because a visitor who's here for a conference or meeting has a different approach to that visit. They are here for something professional in nature and so they require the they require uh, small business partnerships that are that a typical leisure visitor doesn't. A leisure visitor comes, they go to a museum, they go to a attraction, they go to restaurants, they stay at a hotel, they shop, retail. A visitor who's here for a conference convention or meeting does all of those things. But they also are here with a group that ha- that hires an audiovisual company that hires um a, you know a, a, a musical performers that may hire other culture bearers that may hire other um members of the community th- to provide services they may hire uh guest speakers um it, it creates a whole number of different expenditures and so you were talking about economic development the meeting conference convention space is absolutely economic development when I when I come to New Orleans, if I'm a group, and I, and I say, I'm going to bring 12,000 people to a meeting uh, at the convention center, that's almost like starting a new business for, about, for four days at a time. It's sort of like a startup that you have to get all of the different aspects uh, necessary to pull that meeting off. Catering, uh, printing services, audiovisual services, um, you move in and move out construction of uh, trade show uh, floor. Uh, so, I mean, it touches so many different things and that makes it a really important foundational element of the economy here. Secondly, selling to those people is very different than selling to somebody who you want to come here for a leisure trip, because the first thing you've got to convince them of is that you have the necessary infrastructure, meaning the convention center, or the hotel or venue that you're going to host your meeting in is adequate to host that meeting. It's got the right technology. It's got the right lighting. It's got the right uh, space. It's got all of the right services that go along with it to make it a successful meeting. Um, Then you've got to convince them that you've got the appropriate hotel space to be able to accommodate their needs at the right price and at a competitive price with every other city that's competing for that business. And then only after you win that business through being competent and through providing the right venues and through servicing that customer, do you then get to sort of change lanes and say, okay, well, now that you've chosen New Orleans, let's work with you to make sure that plenty of your, your attendees actually come. And part of the value of doing your meeting in New Orleans is that we are an amazing destination with an incredible culture to offer to your attendee. And so now we can kind of shift that story from we have all the, uh, we can deliver you an excellent meeting, by the way, we can also give you a deeper experience that's more rich in culture. And that's why your attendees will attend. So it's a very multifaceted approach. Um, It's very much a, you know, selling to the C-suite and to business executives who are either meeting planners who, or who are, you know, president CEOs or high level executives with, major corporations or major associations that represent those corporations. So very heavy on the on the business side of things, trying to convince people that New Orleans is a better place to have the meeting than Dallas or Atlanta or Houston or Las Vegas, Orlando. Um, and, and our sales team does a great job of servicing these customers year round, calling on them regularly and trying to do the best we can to either get them here for the first time or get them back here uh, for a meeting conference or convention.
0: Let's talk about getting them back for a minute because I think, um, you know, we have a tendency in New Orleans and and I, I have to tell you, honestly, as a former New Yorker, believe it or not, we have the same instinct in New York. New York, everybody would say, hey, it's the greatest city in the world. And then the next moment is, oh my God, this place is such a pain in the neck. Let me out of here.
1: Right. You know,
0: it we have that, that duality. Um, but here, uh, I think of late, and, and not just of late, really, since I've been here, I've noticed this tendency for the city to uh, think that it's great, but on the other hand, think that, oh, we, we just can't do things right. I'll never forget. I, 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 I say I'll never forget, and then I'm not going to remember who the person was who said this, but it was, it was somebody who was either in a leadership role or a reporter, the beginning of the World's Fair. I was handling PR for the World's Fair. What a wonderful experience and learning experience okay. that was. Um, who said? Oh, we can't do a world's fair here. Literally, they said we 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 don't we, we don't have the, we don't have the ability to do that. So there's a tendency for us to both um, uh, blame ourselves for not being as competent as we think we should be. One, and then two, of course, we obsess about crime. And right. you know, crime was a big issue in New York when I left New York. They were in the middle of the heroin um, um, crisis or so the I forget whether it was heroin or cocaine, but both of those had a, a massive effect on huge crime issues up there. And 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 right now, from the pandemic, it's everywhere in the country. But we act like, oh, we're the only city that has crime. I'm so tired of that conversation. I also am tired of people's uh, ideas of what the solutions are to crime, because it has to do with education, and it has to do with opportunity and economic ability of our, our folks and not just slamming people into prison. So I I just don't talk about that on my show as a rule. Right. But my question is, um, I know that when people come here, and this was in a little TV spot the other day, um, that they love the experience they have here, to the extent that as you say they look to coming back in fact there are uh, legions of stories of people who came here for jazz fest sent for their clothes and never went home yeah you know you, you hear that story over and over again. just one of my favorite uh um, examples of, of how people um, react to new orleans but nonetheless we do have to really work hard to do a better job in all of our uh, uh, arenas in our in our public service in our Infrastructure, obviously, we're still dealing with Katrina. I can remember saying myself when Katrina hit, I said, okay, this is the rest of my life. We're gonna be dealing with this for the rest of my life. And we are, I mean, we're still fixing streets. And why are we fixing streets? Because of subsurface things that happened that from the storm, so. But when you talk to people, again, that have been here, and I, I'm sure that you do this, but I don't see it enough. Um, I I would love to hear more from folks who loved it here and, and have uh, fantastic things to say about it. Uh, That would help our locals understand how much people do love their experiences here.
2: It's a a great, it's a great point. I, I couldn't agree with you more as a lifelong resident. We are our biggest fans and sometimes our biggest detractors. We actually get to see it really acutely. It's so interesting. You know, we, um, we, we try to bring in these major associations and there's almost always a champion that is a local, that's a member of these associations who really helps us on the inside to get it here. Um, conversely, yeah. there's oftentimes someone on the inside from here who is sort of like, oh, I don't know, crime. Uh, I don't know, maybe you shouldn't come. the The weather's really bad that time of year. And so really? you get this dichotomy of people who are, Mostly our biggest champion, but sometimes our biggest detractor. And it really kind of just depends on that individual's kind of perspective on things. So it it's fascinating. I uh, my wife gave me a Christmas present this year that was a baseball hat. And I think it kind of sums up perfectly what I feel like I do every day. It says New Orleans versus all y'all. And when we go out, we're against I want you know, one. we're going Can't against where everybody, she got right? it. We're competing with every city all the time. And I do, I've been sharing with people a lot lately because over the the course of the last year, I was on the road over a hundred days last year, selling and promoting New Orleans and meeting with customers and doing, you know, that, you know, hand-to-hand sort of sales work with some of our sales team. And I wish sometimes that more of our residents were able to spend time with people from other places to see their faces light up when they talk about New Orleans. Because the truth is, we do have a very special place here, despite the challenges we've got. And as you said, everyone has challenges. But I'd much rather be selling the city of New Orleans than anywhere else, um, just given the fact that there are so many people who really feel a connection to it. And it's unique in that I think you know when people say, I aspire to go visit New York. Um, what, and many times what they're saying is, I want to go see the Statue of Liberty. Um, I'd like to go to Broadway. I, um, want to go to the, um, you know, World Trade Center and pay my respects. There are a number of different sort of, uh, attractions that they feel like they need to see, or they go to San Francisco, they have to see the, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, or, you know, there are often things that they want to see. I I think that people want to come to New Orleans because they want to live, like we do just for a little bit of time and they want to feel the spirit of this place. And certainly we have great attractions that they want to see. Um, They want to go to the world war II museum or Audubon or, and certainly to the French quarter and to experience it, but the, um, and the other neighborhoods across the city, but in a way, they just want to feel the spirit of it. And so such a special place, um, as you said, not without challenges. And certainly um, it's definitely, uh, I think, a miss when people here don't fully appreciate that there are challenges in every city in America, that no no one's living in utopia, everyone's got challenges, many of them very, very similar to the ones that we're facing. And so um, our team really works to be positive, to tell the positive stories of the city and to work through those challenges. When there are questions about public safety, when there are questions about other issues, we sit down and we deal with them. You know, we talk it through, we look at data, we look at evidence. And we paint the picture for people, and the truth is, most of the time we're able to successfully maneuver through that. Um, the challenge is that when we have a tough year like last year, where there were some really serious spikes in in crime, and you get national media paying attention, you've got to really work hard to keep the meetings that you've got booked, and it makes it even harder to book future meetings. You know, we we're booking these conferences and meetings up to ten years into the future, and so. It's one thing to compete really hard and win and sell and get that booking for 2028. It's another thing to have to resell it in 2024 and in 2025 and in 2026 to keep somebody from pulling out and moving to a different location. And certainly the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot of that. And I know that's put a lot of pressure on our team. You know, we booked 1.45 million new hotel room nights in 2023 for conferences and conventions. And at the same time, many of our sales members are reselling those same meetings that they booked two and three years ago, um, just to keep them on the books. Yeah. So it's um, there are certainly challenges with that. I, again, I don't think we're the only ones facing it, and that's just part of the the landscape right now. We have to keep uh, be vigilant and stay in in touch with our customers, even ones that are confirmed, to keep them locked in.
0: How does um... How has the uh, Zoom uh, universe affected you? So, uh, at our level, at the local level, you know that we have many less live meetings. We we tend to do Zoom meetings. It's so much more convenient. Um, it's it's not the, the optimum way to interact with folks in the in the end. And sooner or later, you know, you want to have that live meeting. But what kind of an impact has that had on on the larger scale events, if any?
2: Yeah, so I, I think that, um, as you as you said, Zoom is a great way to sort of keep in touch and maintain relationships. I think it's a very difficult way to establish relationships and build them, you know, and build trust. And so there's still tremendous value placed on the face-to-face interaction. Um, we, in the industry at large, you know, and we work with our our partners across the country through the United States Travel Association we um we certainly see there that there's an impact you know most organizations are having a little bit smaller meetings and they're also building in technology to allow for some people to be able to attend remotely and that's that's having an impact i think for us we continue to see that when when organizations meet in new orleans they do have better attendance so even though attendance may be down a little bit across the industry people are still excited to come to our city and so the associations benefit from choosing New Orleans. We have a little bit better attendance than other places, but I think it's I think it's absolutely true. So that's
0: that there's a an major competitive advantage uh, in a in in this new context where people have the choice of, of going to a meeting remotely. Um, so the experience of New Orleans uh, puts you in a, a, a more competitive position. Interestingly, that's, I think that's, so. Uh, I, I, I think know, so, what, and I
2: think. Because, look, there are plenty of cities that have very, very nice and really much newer and more advanced convention centers and certainly much newer and more advanced hotel properties. And so when we're competing on those fronts, you know, it can be challenging from an experience standpoint, though, Columbus, Ohio can't compete with New Orleans. It's a very lovely city. Um, I've been there for a conference um, very, very nice. I think even maybe exceeding expectations, um, and very high quality facilities, but ultimately the experience that new Orleans has, is, and, and I mean, no disrespect to Columbus, but you know, there are plenty of cities out there that are building convention centers and doing it really well. Um, but, but certainly the experience here continues to be one that we think is an advantage for us. And, um, we, um, we're hopeful that we'll get some additional investment here and in upgrades and hotel properties, possibly some new hotel uh, properties. And you know, up, up, certainly there are upgrades happening at the Superdome and at the convention center, which are really essential to competing. Um, but yes, the experience really matters ultimately and, and creating something special for people matters. One thing we've been really focused on too, though, is you also don't want people to feel like that they've been here and they don't need to come back. Right. So you want to keep finding ways to recreate yourself, reinvent yourself and and expand the the opportunities for people when they come here to see different parts of the city, to see different neighborhoods, to experience that there's a lot more uh to New Orleans than simply, you know, uh the French quarter. Uh and, you know, really tell that story and and actually also tell a broader story about the surrounding areas. You know, I mean, they're unique. So-
0: actually going to be my yeah. That was actually going to be my next question. Um, uh, and uh, l- looking at um, how you are developing the industry and keeping up with uh, uh, trends, um, wh- how do you see uh, uh, all aspects of your work? Your your marketing, your service, your um, as you say, you're uh, uh, working with um, hotels and other venues to make sure that they are. Uh, up to quality that they should be and so forth how, how what are the trends in your work in in doing that
2: so you know we're we're fortunate um we have we have built a really strong 2025 26 27 28 29 convention calendar those are really important as i was saying because they're the most predictable business you know you've got contracts with organizations that and that, and with hotels that are guaranteeing uh, people are going to show up contractually, and so our our community can plan around that and know that they can expect that level of visitorship. And then we can work on the leisure side to fill in the gaps um, at you know throughout those years. So we have been called upon by many of our hotel properties to go spend time with them and present that data to them as encouragement to make investments in renovations and upgrades to their properties. We see some of those things on the horizon. I think we'll see a lot of that happening, you know, right after the Super Bowl, because now we're so close to it, it's not really feasible to launch a renovation one year out. Um, but so we've been presenting the the data and the evidence that that lays the foundation and justification for, for major investment in our hotel properties, which we think is really important. Um, we also, you know, have put together for the first time ever, a real marketing campaign based on conventions and meetings. We call it built to host. And it speaks to the infrastructure that we have here. It speaks to the layout of the city, speaks to the walkability of the city, speaks to the professionalism of the hospitality industry. Um, It certainly highlights things like the convention center, the Superdome and the French border being within a two mile triangle uh, of each other. That is That makes it a real campus when you have a meeting or an event here and makes it really easy to to move people around. You save some of the cost associated with buses and other things when you can move people around more efficiently, um, and that helps us to be competitive. And so Built to Host has really given us an opportunity. We partner with the convention center, but it's designed to attract business to the convention center and also in-house to our hotel properties across the community um, about Roughly about half of the meetings and conferences that we book come to the convention center and about half go into hotels and are smaller in nature. Um, So really, we're talking about thousands of meetings throughout the course of the year. We've had a lot of success with it. We're uh, in the process of going out to take sort of new new pictures, new video, update our content so that we can uh, efficiently market to the corporate and business clients that we've got. And in doing that, we're focusing on some of the outdoor activities that are available here, you know, whether that's at City Park, uh, Bayou St. John, or whether it's in our surrounding parishes down in Jefferson or St. Bernard or Plaquemines, where people can experience offshore fishing or inshore fishing, um, really high-end sort of uh, outdoor experiences. Of course, there are other, uh, you know, there's a new zip line out in, in uh, just out past Kenner, um, that's in in sort of the wetlands area. I think people, it's interesting, as I talk to our corporate customers, there just hasn't been a lot of uh, education on some of those things. And they're really excited to learn that these experiences are 30 to 45 minutes away from downtown. Um, it's another thing I think we that's interesting about us in New Orleans. We're so used to being able to move around our city with so much efficiency, 20 minutes to this place, 20 minutes to that place that if it's 30 minutes or 45 minutes, we think, well, we shouldn't even really talk about that. That's way too far. But if you go to any city in America, they're, they're regularly moving you 30 or 45 minutes around to get from one venue to the next. And so the idea that you can go catch
0: downtown in New York, it's it's, the 45 minutes. Yeah.
2: I mean, so it's, it's another example of us not fully sort of appreciating how, how nice it is to live in a compact community like this. And I think really focus on that. You know, you can go, you can leave downtown and in 45 minutes, you can be catching some of the greatest redfish and speckled trout in the world. And uh, and an hour and a half later, you could be back at a restaurant downtown and hand them the fish and they can cook it for you. You know, I mean, there are experiences that are really unique and special that I think we haven't fully been able to to sell and, and, and help people understand. And that's something that we really focused on helping people get that they're are really unique experiences beyond what they expect from New Orleans. And and that's been fun, challenging, and I think it creates an opportunity for us.
0: And that's another thing that I think um, is very uh, unique about us that a lot of people don't understand, because I don't think we've marketed it enough, and that is um, diversity as a factor in the experience here. There was a, a piece in The New York Times yesterday There, I don't remember how many it was, like 70-some favorite little factoids that were buried in stories that they had run in the newspaper. And one of those was about the black chefs and new black restaurants in New Orleans that are telling a story that we haven't adequately told about the African influences on our cuisine. And I, uh, I mean, I just looked at it because I wanted to look at the interesting little factoids, and then bam, there was the, the fifth story. Was I mean, fourth or fifth? The item that they had was about our chefs, and that's um, you know turning diversity on its heels in a way. For us, it is a, a selling point.
2: So it's absolutely part of our strategy, and that story is one that we placed with the New York Times. You know, I mean, we. I don't I think there's another escaped fact we placed 1100 stories last year in media across the the world we had hundreds of journalists that we brought to the city in fact we worked closely with uh with um chef serene at Dakar Nola recently uh who is an emerging uh chef across the nation and and a uh, real amazing story for the city of New Orleans we deservedly him. We, I tasted his food it's great we we brought him up to um We brought him up to New York with us and partnered him with another emerging chef um, at Tatiana, which is run by uh, another young emerging African-American chef who's been received many, many accolades. And we put them together, brought in a bunch of media and told that story because as you're suggesting, New Orleans is well known for culinary uh, pursuits and credibly celebrated for having great food. Um, oftentimes centered on cre- uh, Creole and Cajun cuisine. Um, but people like Chef Serene are doing amazing things with singhalese food. We have similar things happening with a number of different areas, Vietnamese, um, a lot of diversity in what we offer here. And it's often always influenced in some way by, by other cultures. And so I don't know that I, I agree with you. We're, do, we're trying to do better at telling that international cuisine story we have an opportunity to really celebrate that in 24 because we attracted one of the world's most important culinary competitions, Bocuse d'Or, based in Lyon, France. Never before have they hosted the the uh, competition here in the United States. We threw some support from the the French uh, embassy. Uh, Hadn't had got a tip that there was a competition underway. We jumped in it and we were able to win it. In June, we'll have some of the greatest chefs in North and South America competing here to go on to the finals in Lyon, France, and gives us an international platform to celebrate uh, what we're doing here in the city and give some of these chefs an opportunity to really emerge and tell their stories. And they are deep and they are broad, and they are different than I think what people expect. And so we're really focused on giving people the opportunity to get to know New Orleans, but also to get to know some of those things that they may not know, give them a little bit of a surprise and and another reason for them to come to come visit us. So that's um, we, we we love when we are successful in getting writers to write things that really matter. And um, it, it it's a our, our PR team does an extraordinary job. And I'm really proud of the the, the journalists that we brought in over the course of the last year hosted them, created itineraries for them, and then ultimately our community benefits from getting to see those articles all over the world, um, telling the story for us.
0: We could probably do three shows uh, right away, uh, right now, with what you can tell us about um, your experience and and how we're doing in the world tourism market. And uh, of course, can't do it right now. So I, I look forward to uh, having you on periodically to update uh, us on, exactly. on things and and share ideas. Um, so uh, I hope this is the, the great year that you're describing. I know we already considering that last year was a rough year. Oh my God! It seemed like we d- never didn't have a huge party going on somewhere in the city. And um, as you said, the neighborhoods are definitely coming to the floor, and I'm a big believer and supporter in that. So. I'm gonna say thank you so much, Walt. And I hope this is a fantastic year. And um, I'm going to visit with you again soon.
2: We look forward to that. Thank you, bye-bye.
0: We have with us today, a young man, Jonathan Light, still young, who um, has found himself to be um, a leading developer, of um, affordable housing, working with a company named Alembic Community Development, which has been doing this um, for considerable years and considerable projects. They already have, from what I understand, over 2,000 units that have been built, uh, 250,000 square feet of commercial space, and um, over a billion dollars in investment. Now that might not compare to some of the super huge uh, real estate companies in the world, but it's considerable and i think that what's important about what olympic has been doing is working on models to facilitate affordable housing we all hear about the affordable housing crisis we know it's a problem um, there are alternative strategies for trying to address it and to solve it uh, from the sort of deep rooted sociological issues that we have to address educational issues and and, and so forth. But in terms of literally creating housing, um, Alembic Community Development has got a beat on this, I would say. And so um, Jonathan is with us to, to explore this. I, I, J- Jonathan, I really have to start with um, why is affordable housing such a crisis level? Um, I guess both policy and uh, production issue. W- what's the issue? Why is it so hard?
1: Hmm. Uh, okay, so a multifaceted question to begin with. Um, there's, uh, I mean, at its most basic, on economic level, incomes incomes have not kept up with costs. Right, rent has escalated far more quickly than people's incomes have. Um, right, people's incomes have typically remain flat right adjusted for inflation um for, for for a long period of time well we know that in our certainly in our cities and um not even the hottest real estate markets um, but just places where, where people want to live rents um cost of ownership have gone up considerably um so th- that that's that's one answer um another answer is that there is not um enough there there's not been um Political will to allocate enough financing to subsidize affordable housing that is needed to build the units that are um, are needed by by households, families, individuals, seniors, etc. Uh, there is another answer, which is that we often have local policies um, around zoning and other and land uses that do not encourage um, and or require enough affordable housing in our developments. That are going on. Um, there's answers around you know, impediments like insurance. One you kind of parallel with the affordable housing crisis. Certainly in Louisiana, uh, you know, Florida, uh, California, a whole bunch of states around the country, there's an insurance crisis that has made insurance, you know, property insurance unaffordable for many people, um, which compounds with what are currently you know, high interest rates, not not you know, astronomically high compared to what some other generations have experienced. And certainly over the, since 2008, um, these, a are the high interest rate environment. So When you couple that with insurance, um, potential home buyers are their ability to borrow and, and afford a, a, a home that is within their reach become, uh, well with that, uh, well beyond their reach.
0: Yeah, I'm familiar with the insurance issue. <laughs> I'm not looking to get new housing, but just keeping my housing, it's definitely a, a huge issue. And in Louisiana, of course, in particular, because we have um, that uh, coastal uh, boundaries of our state that are uh, definitely uh, a, a, a serious challenge. In fact, um, that's actually something that maybe we'll get to in this conversation because there's the question of whether um, we can solve uh, the threat uh, through housing in our um uh, existing uh, parameters, or are we literally going to have to migrate? And, and there are those people who uh, make the migration um, argument, which I don't. I figure we can figure out a way to put housing on water. Why not? <laughs> I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious. Okay, so, um, all right, so Alembic, again, has developed a model, and I, th- I think that perhaps the most um, uh, core aspect of it uh, it's, it's not that nobody else is doing anything like this. I'm not saying that you're you know, the most innovative in the entire universe, but I, I'd, lo- I'd love to know what aspects of how you do what you're doing are innovative. But certainly we're a model in the sense of, you know, again, having that threat, having a lot of poverty, having um, uh, inadequate policies to support what we need to do. And it's about to get worse. Because we, uh, you don't have to say this, but I think most of us are concerned about the new administration and the extent to which they're gonna support uh, what we need. And um, I I have hope. I think actually uh, rhetoric aside, you never know how someone's gonna perceive the job once they get into it. So we'll see what happens. But what what do you feel uh, is the most, what are the most critical strategies uh, that you have developed with your company, Alembic, um, and that we know are working uh, nationwide in uh, addressing this and, and making it possible to build the housing that we need.
1: Yeah, I really, yes, want to emphasize that this is not so sort of to Alembic. This is, uh, affordable housing development is certainly a bit of a niche industry, but there are many folks, both for-profit and, and nonprofit organizations who are doing this. Um, in New Orleans, who are doing this in the region and, and nationally, um, and we all learn from one another. Um, that this is not um, those complicated, complex. Um, it's also um, there are tools available, and um, there there are there are programs that are created in order to help facilitate financing of affordable housing. Um, there are a few things I think that we do. Um, one is. I mean, just an obvious one around financing um, that, again, other affordable housing developers utilize. There are um, there are federal programs, and it's important to highlight that the majority of funding that comes to the states and to municipalities, to cities, is federal money. If we want to really make a dent in uh, large numbers of affordable housing units, then it has to come from federal resources. So that means the congressional budget, that means, um, the allocation that goes to HUD um, to the Congress um, and the administration every every fiscal year um, you know it's working it's it's lobbying your um, your, your, your congress people your senators uh, people who have influence influence on on budget um, at the federal level um, that plays out then at the state and local level so that's where our council people that's where our certainly our, our governor and mayors um, once that money comes down to the states and to municipalities, then it gets programmed in different ways. Some of it is pre-programmed by HUD, but some of it isn't. Some of it then gets created into different different programs that can support housing development. So one of the things that an alumbic or, or get all the developers who are really excellent at this is knowing how this funding works, um, where to find it, um, how it gets layered together. Like there, are, you know, it's not just one funding source that makes a project happen. It's multiple. I mean, in a in a typical project of ours, um, you know, let's say we have a $10 million project, we might have 10 different sorts and different sources of financing that help make that happen from tax credits to, to different loans to different um, investors, you know, grants, other things that we'll pull together. So you need to kind of know a bit about um, the industry to know where to look for things, where not to go. Um, you know unfortunately sometimes there's there's too much gatekeeping going on one of the things that we really like to do is to, to when we want to just say we work in partnership we join venture with nonprofit organizations who are typically kind of community-based um, but have it, it, have a constituency um and we work in literal legal partnership um we believe that the sharing of 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 control decision making of economics of ownership um, is is really what's what's um, what's paramount in these developments um so that developers you know by definition we're outside of community where we're working um we want to make sure that we have accountability and partnership um, with organizations that are that are that are representative of community um we spend a lot of time educating our partners on how this stuff works we believe that this is you know like many industries there's jargon there's things meant to keep people out you know gatekeeping we really want to educate folks and share knowledge share information Um, doesn't mean everyone's going to go out and be a developer that's not the point but the point is that communities um, and organizations need to know that these resources exist Um, so in our project i'd say it's not just kind of what we do um for, uh, we've actually never developed a market rate unit. Um, you we mentioned we've done about 2000 units, 100% of them are affordable. Um, there are lots of great developers who do mixed income. Um, that just hasn't been our niche. Our niche has been to do entirely affordable development. Um, but it's not just like the, the kind of what we, what our projects are. Um, but they're how we work, which again is in, in partnership, um, that are truly meaningful, um, and mutually beneficial. Um, and then third, I'd say is kind of where we work. So we're, we're really solely working in underinvested neighborhoods um, in New Orleans. That's been Central City, um, uh, Seventh Ward, and Lower Ninth Ward.
0: What was the uh, Lower Ninth Ward, Central City, and what was the third?
1: Uh, seventh Ward uh, uh, slash Mid City. Yeah.
0: Seventh Ward. Okay. Okay. Um. So uh, what are some of the most, uh, you you mentioned the gatekeeping can be problematic, especially uh, when it's around zoning issues and land use issues, uh, where there's um, existing policies that are prohibitive or discourage um, uh, the kind of development that you do. And then also, we have to admit that there are people who don't want uh, to have affordable housing near them. And that's at the heart of that gatekeeping process, right? So so how do you, do you work with people in the the, the area that would, you're going to develop a project, not just the people who are uh, involved with the partnership and going to be benef- um, benefit from it, but what about the community beyond? Do you try to um, win over friends, so to speak, in the neighborhood towards your project? Based on how you do things.
1: Yeah, of course, absolutely. It's one of the reasons we try to focus in on um, um, communities and neighborhoods in, in in a place like New Orleans, where I've been here now, I'm not not native, but I've been here since two thousand seven. Um, and we we are not working everywhere, right? We're not. There's all kinds of communities and, and places, certainly that that need additional investment. Um, we really want to build relationships and have ongoing relationships in communities so that we're um, it, really, really bringing multiple investments when we can through, through development. Um, and and yeah, that means, um, you know, you don't kind of, uh, you know, there's lots of great consultants and lots of great professionals who work in this field. Um, for, for us, it's really important that when we're having community meetings, when we're at the city council, when we're um, at, city planning uh, just kind of out at a site that it's us there. Um, we don't kind of put up other other folks, other consultants or things um, to kind of to do our to work. It's important for us that we build direct relationships. Um, we're also a very small shop. There's three of us here. So kind of by definition, we do a lot, um, kind of everything ourselves. Um, I, I'd say, I mean, as you kind of alluded to, there's also right, folks that um, I'd say we never tune out. Um, we always listen to everyone. Um, but we also believe in, in a kind of greater good um, around affordable housing. Um, a sort that quick anecdote that sticks out to me a lot is um we're in, in, we partnered with Gulf Coast Housing Partnership, who I'd say is like probably the kind of leading nonprofit affordable housing developer in the region. So as far as units you know, been a great, uh, great affordable housing developer, we partnered with them um, on redeveloping a portion of the Brown Dairy site on Aretha Castle Hilly Boulevard. Um and it's 192 affordable apartments, um, along with a, a community health center operated by uh, DePaul Community Health Centers. Um, and anyway, as part of our um, zoning approvals for that project, early on years ago, we had a community meeting uh, in Central City. Uh, and someone, uh, a, a few folks were concerned about parking. Um, we have 125, I believe, parking spaces for 192 apartments. And there was concerns like, well, it should be one-to-one and or more than that. And, you know, I'll be just speaking for myself, I'm not a big believer in service parking. Um, and we certainly see it in affordable housing. Lots of people don't own cars or at least car ownership is not one car to one person. Um, anyway, w- one gentleman was particularly vocal in, in saying that there's just not nearly enough parking, we need more and more parking. And um, when I talked to him afterwards, I, I learned that um, he, he lived about a block away and he owned Four cars, um, and he parked several of them on the street. He was concerned that our residents um, would would take up his on street parking. So anyway, that's not every person who's opposed to affordable housing, certainly. <laughs> um, but stuff like that comes up, and you know you have to really have conversations with so people to understand where they're coming from and what their concerns are about.
0: Right, exactly. Um, so um, by the way, um, how do you define affordable housing?
1: Hmm. Uh, So, you know, as always, not a straight answer, but um, I I define it as um, is not something that is solely for uh, low-income families or households, uh, but it's the rent that is the rent or the mortgage payment that is affordable to your household based off your income. Um, HUD defines that as 30% of gross income going towards your housing costs, so not just rent or mortgage, but your total housing costs. So that's something that we always keep in mind. Right, there's it, when you have a a note on your house, you're paying not just principal and interest, you're paying insurance and taxes as well. So that total payment um, should not be more than 30 to 35 percent of your your total income. Um, uh, on on top of that, there's we you know transportation costs. So I would include not just housing, but housing plus transportation. And this was really a movement that started, you know, certainly at you least know, probably a decade ago. Um, where people start recognizing maybe even earlier that, um, right, the, the increase in housing unaffordability in our, in our cities, where most jobs are located, certainly not all, but many, means that people have to move farther and farther away from employment in order to afford rent or afford a mortgage, in which case you're just adding to your gas cost or adding if you're fortunate enough to be in a density with trains, right, to that transportation, Um, right you're not you're not biking or walking to work Um, so it's important to consider your kind of total um, total expenditure um, that is related to making housing choices
0: when can we expect to see as dramatic a development as there was in the 30s when they built a lot of public housing is is that in our future or are you just going to have to keep slogging along
1: um, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, a, I guess, a crystal ball person. I, I will say that one of the many things that you need to make major progress like that, um, I already mentioned political will, but you need alignment. You need alignment, right? So much of this money, it has to come from federal government, um, and then it has to come down to state municipalities um, in a way that those states can, can reprogram repro- can the funding in a way that works for local conditions. So, like the way that Louisiana may need to deploy federal resources is going to be different than New York. It's going to be different than California. It's going to be different from different places. Uh, I do want to highlight a, a local example um, that I think is really important. Is that as I said, you know, most of our resources for affordable housing are federal. Um, that said, we do have some local funds, and um, you your listeners may have seen in the paper recently that Councilmember Leslie Harris recently spearheaded an effort um for before what for an affordable housing trust fund that was capitalized with 17 million oh, dollars yeah. and um folks may also remember that, that this is a new source of local money so this is not other people's money this is us right putting in our budget um million, which is i'd say you know it's not huge it's not 170 million um, it's not what i think affordable housing advocates would want myself included um, but it's not nothing either. Um, it's, it's, it, it's money that can go to fill gaps in projects that certainly we have, many folks have, and it can help get projects across the finish line. And it's a local investment. And when we talk, I work a lot with national funders. Um, one of the key questions that they want to see is what is the local commitment to these issues? Um, we're doing a lot of work around early childhood education right now and creating facilities for that. Um, the fact that we passed the millage in 2022, um for starting 20 yeah 2022 um was huge because these are local dollars that are going to support early education and then we leverage that by bringing national money that has you know oftentimes deeper pocketbooks than, than local sources in new orleans same with affordable housing the fact that we're you know choosing to put and again council for harris was raised in this allocating 17 million um the whole council got behind her the mayor got behind it, it everyone got behind this um it was there's a real kind of alignment of, of recognition that we need this. One of the reasons we need this source is because we had a former local source called the Neighborhood Housing Improvement, uh, Housing Improvement Fund, I believe, the NIF, N-H-I-F. Um, this was around for many years, um, it was not always funded, um, but it came to, uh, it was on the ballot um, around the similar time, I believe in 2022 or 20, early 23, and the voters did not support it. Um, it was not, it was not voted in. So that was previously a dedicated source to go to affordable housing and other community development needs. Um, Now, at least in lieu of that, we have a one-time affordable housing trust fund. I hope that that becomes part of the regular budget every year. Um, We have to prioritize. We have so many priorities as a city. Everyone knows this. Um, Affordable housing has to be at the top of that list along with infrastructure, along with addressing public safety, along with public health, um, along with all these other priorities. And too often, we just leave affordable housing um, kind of down for people just to figure out um, if you don't have stable, um, safe, sanitary, affordable housing, very difficult um, to do other things. We know that.
0: That was a, that was a very t- uh, important uh, eye-opener for a lot of the issues that you're dealing with. I would encourage you to keep me informed going forward when things develop. Um, let me uh, share it with people so that they know them that um, it's not an intractable issue. It's just a difficult one. And I appreciate and, con- and and commend you and your partners and your organization, the Alembic Community Development Organization. So um, thank you very much for everything that you do and for the time you gave me today on the middle of our sort of you know, waning holiday season. Yeah,
1: okay. Thank you.
0: Appreciate it. This is Gene Nathan for Cross Town Conversations. Tune in next week too.